Every year, our church hosts a pastor's conference for the Calvary Chapel churches here in the Deep South. Pastors make the pilgrimage with their leaders. It's an opportunity for us to worship together and to catch up with one another and to brief each other on what God is doing, to pray for one another, to listen to encouraging teaching, and perhaps most importantly, to eat lots and lots of barbecue. Our conference is a vital time for the churches. And in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we follow Paul to a pastor's conference. Acts chapter 15 opens 20 years after the day of Pentecost. You remember in the upper room, God's Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And it was like a rock splashing in a lake. Ripples of faith went out in all directions. The gospel spread to Judea, then to Samaria, to North Africa, to Damascus. And then the breakthrough occurred. Gentiles, folks who weren't Jews, were born into God's family. In seaside Caesarea, God saved by faith a Roman soldier in his household. Full-blooded Gentiles. Soon after, a church was established in Syrian Antioch, targeting Gentiles as candidates for the gospel. And in Acts chapter 13 and 14, the church in Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas on a mission to deliberately reach Gentiles. Which brings us now to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea to Antioch and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, when you think of villains, I'm sure Nazis, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, mafia all come to mind. But you need to add to that list the name Judaizers. These guys were theological thugs. The Judaizers picked on new believers and robbed them of their faith and joy. You remember when Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans, I'm sure there were some Jews who raised an eyebrow. The Samaritans? When Peter preached to the Romans at the centurion Cornelius' house, Orthodox Jews began to talk. But when Paul now traveled to Galatia and deliberately targeted the Gentiles for salvation, these Jewish legalists went ballistic. The Hebrews had spent 1,500 years trying to keep the law of Moses. And now how dare Paul offer salvation to the Gentiles by faith alone? You see, these Judaizers, they were party poopers. Where was the blood and sweat and tears, they asked? How could faith in Jesus accomplish what rigorous legalism had failed to do? These Judaizers wanted to sentence the Gentiles to the same hard labor they had served. They wanted to add some elbow grease to the blood of Jesus. And these prideful Jews came to Antioch to correct Paul. They put more confidence in the blood of goats than in the blood of Christ. They hoped in their own righteousness, not Christ's righteousness. They relied on their own good works rather than in God's grace. You see, the Judaizers scoffed at the all-sufficiency of Jesus. They pushed a Christ-plus theology. Oh, it's okay if you put your faith in Jesus as long as you require certain elements of the Jewish law. It was Christ-plus Sabbath-keeping, Christ-plus kosher laws, Christ-plus sacrifices, and above all, 
Christ plus circumcision. You see, circumcision was the logo of Judaism. A Gentile convert had to go under the knife. How could you be saved if you neglected such a vital Jewish tradition? But Paul fought back against this kind of teaching. He resisted the arguments of legalism. This was a crucial issue in the church. Notice verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now Luke here skips over in one sentence what Paul takes almost a whole chapter in Galatians to describe. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul remembers this moment. He writes, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. See, when these legalists arrived in Antioch, even the apostle Peter was intimidated by them. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter had been schooled in grace. Remember his vision from heaven? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But in Antioch, Peter preferred the Jewish visitors over his Gentile brothers. He treated the Gentile believers as if they were second-class Christians. And Paul confronted him. He went toe-to-toe with old Pentecost Pete. I'm telling you, it took some courage on Paul's part. He rebuked his fellow elder with the truth of God's grace, that the gospel is grace for every race. Gentiles and Jews are both saved the same way by faith in Jesus. God's righteousness comes apart from the law by faith. Paul stood up for the Gentiles that Jesus died to save. And he won the argument in Antioch. Now, though, the Judaizers moved the debate onto their own turf in Jerusalem. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. As they moved down to Jerusalem, as they journeyed, they traveled to the churches and they celebrated the grace of God. You know, it's been said, a person who lives out the grace of God brings joy wherever he or she goes. A legalist brings joy whenever he or she goes. In verse 4, the Gentile evangelists, Paul and Barnabas, they arrive. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now here was this heated debate in a nutshell. Did a Gentile have to become a Jew before he could be saved? In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, Not only did he and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, but they took evidence with them. Evidence of grace through faith. They took a convert, an uncircumcised believer named Titus. And this outraged the Judaizers. In fact, they tried to put Titus under the knife. Paul, though, refused. He insisted that circumcision just won't cut it. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. Verse 6. 
Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And here was the first, the very first church council. In the next 700 years of Christianity, there will be eight more major church councils where church leaders come together to settle disputes and hammer out doctrine. But this initial church council was crucial. If the Judaizers had prevailed, Christianity would have been reduced to a Jewish sect. The spread of the gospel would have been stunted among the Gentiles. This was a vital moment. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now here Peter's referencing what happened 10 years earlier in Acts chapter 10. The Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius before Peter had even finished his sermon. He hadn't even mentioned the law. All he talked about was Jesus and what he had done for us. Without clipping a single circumcision, God responded to their faith and saved the Gentiles. He says, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledging them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, and he made no distinction between us and them, purified their hearts by faith. This is what God did, he said. How can you argue with God? See, God had purified the hearts of the Gentiles and poured out his spirit on them, just as he did the Jews, not because of their good works or their compliance to the law, but for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, these Gentiles, you gotta, these were unreligious people. These Gentiles, these, probably, these are the people that probably went to football games on the Sabbath. Smoke big fat cigars, chewed tobacco and spit it out in a paper cup, and ate pork barbecue and listened to rock and roll music. These guys even wore shorts to church on Sundays. I mean, they were ignorant of religious protocol. When they heard the name Moses, they thought of Charlton Heston. Not only had they never kept the law, they had never read it. And yet here's the amazing thing. God accepted them and forgave them and sealed them and filled them and saved them with the Holy Spirit. Gentiles, no less, he saved by faith. Peter says in verse 10, Now therefore, why do we test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The Hebrews had failed to keep their own law. They tried, but it was too comprehensive. They had worked hard at it. They had worked hard to be good, but they were never good enough. Ever had that feeling? Despite all their well-meaning effort, the Jews were still sinners, just like the Gentiles. Oh, they were religious sinners. They were well-groomed sinners. They were sanitary sinners. They were probably healthier sinners, but they were sinners nonetheless. And all that their legalism had done was just made them proud and self-righteous. Judaism was a treadmill, always doing but going nowhere. So why expect the Gentiles to now keep a standard that had eluded the Jews? Peter confesses, but we, that is the Jewish leaders of the early church, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What a declaration. 
Neither Jews or Gentiles were made right with God through their own efforts. We all approach God the same way, Peter says, by faith through God's grace. Well, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. They discussed the recent results of their trip to Cyprus and Galatia, how God had blinded a sorcerer and healed a lame man, that he had worked miracles in the midst of the Gentiles, further proof of God's acceptance of them. Well, verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. This was James. James was the brother of our Lord Jesus. And James carried some serious clout in the early church, in the Jerusalem church. As a matter of fact, we're told that James had several nicknames that reflected his godly character. One was the just. See, you don't get called the just with sloppy living. He was the just. He had an impeccable integrity. Another name Nickname for James was Old Camel Knees, since his knees were callous like a camel from his much time in prayer. This was James. Yet in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul had referred to the Judaizers who showed up in Antioch as certain men came from James. Now, certainly, James believed in salvation by faith through grace. But from the letter he writes later, bearing his name, what we view as the book of James, we know that James did have some strong convictions on the importance of good works. According to James, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Read James, and James insists that real faith produces practical evidence of a changed life. Evidently, though, that there were, there were Jewish believers who had misinterpreted James while claiming to represent him. The importance he had placed on works didn't diminish his appreciation of grace. Salvation is by faith alone. I think this was one of the reasons that James stood up and he spoke up at this council here in Jerusalem. James wanted to set the record straight. He stood with Paul and Peter in their defense of the gospel and the importance of faith. And you know, it helps to recall the stand that James takes here in Acts chapter 15 whenever we embark on a study of the book of James. Well, James continues his speech in verse 14. He says, Simon, that is Peter, has declared how God at the the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 8, 11. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. James turns to the Old Testament now to validate what's happening in the New Testament. And he quotes Amos, who speaks of the end times, how that Gentile believers will seek the Lord in a rebuilt place of worship, a tabernacle, and not just Jews, he says, but the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, 
will come to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah. James concludes in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. History is always his story. Now here James's point. The Jewish prophecies taught God's love for the Gentiles and his desire to save all men. So what was happening at the time in the church among the Gentiles here was part of God's eternal plan. The prophets said so. Peter recalled God's work in the past. Paul recounts his work now in the present. And James speaks of God's work in the future. When God's word and God's works line up, when the past and present and future align, you can be sure that you're witnessing the hand of the Lord at work. What bothered the Judaizers was obviously no bother to God. Now understand, Paul might have wanted to shut the mouths of those Judaizers. He didn't like them at all. But to James, they were fellow Jews, and he sought to open their eyes. He wasn't just trying to win an argument. James's goal was to win a brother. And this becomes the motivation behind what happens next. You see, we're reconciled to God by faith alone. But the gospel also seeks to reconcile us to our fellow man. Jews and Gentiles are to become one in Christ. And thus James empathized not only with the Gentiles who were being saved, but with his fellow Jews and their loyalty to the law. For he knew how difficult it was for an Orthodox Jew to transition from legalism to grace. And remember, Acts 15 occurred before Romans was written, before Galatians and Hebrews were written. Relating to God by grace was new to these Jewish believers. It was clear to James and to the church council that God was forging a new direction, but James wanted to take his Jewish brothers with him, not leave them behind. And so James makes a suggestion. Verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now you see, James hopes to ease the Jews into grace. Oh, he insists that the Gentile believers maintain their freedom from the law. But can't they do it in a way that doesn't deliberately offend the Jews unnecessarily? Can't the Gentiles limit their freedom for a time until the Jews can catch up? Seems reasonable. You know, Dwight Eisenhower spoke of the art of compromise as the ability to employ all of the usable surface. I like that. The ability to employ all of the usable surface. He said the extremes, right or left, are in the gutters. You see, if James had sided exclusively with the Jews without recognizing the freedom we have in Christ, he would have been in the right-hand gutter. If he'd sided with the Gentiles without any sensitivity to the conscience of the Jews, he'd been in the left-hand gutter. 
Instead, he empathizes with both groups while being faithful to God's love and truth. He finds usable surface to both support the Gentiles and to encourage the Jews. You see, the Mosaic Law contains 613 rules, 613 laws. And here, James whittles them down to four that were of particular importance to the Jews. Meat sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, meat not properly prepared or unkosher meat, and the drinking of blood. And he says, can't we at least restrain ourselves from these things until the Jews can catch up and enjoy the same freedom we have or the Gentiles have? Later in the New Testament, once the Jews have had an opportunity to grow in grace, Paul will remove even these four sanctions. Of course, sexual immorality is never permissible, but not because of law, because of love. If you really love someone, you'll want to respect them and uphold their sexual purity. With all these divisive issues, James shows wisdom and strikes this compromise. And you know, with all the divisive issues in the church today, we also need leaders who, like James, who between truth and love can find usable surface to help keep us together. Well, verse 22 tells us, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. It's interesting, Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath. It's ironic that the son of the Sabbath now goes to Antioch with Paul to free Gentiles from keeping Sabbath rules. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. And how sweet that sound. Jews now called Gentiles brethren. You know, the gospel can bridge even the steepest divides. It can bring even the most unlikely people together. Well, since we have heard that some of you went out from us, have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. And here's the verdict that they reached. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The Jerusalem church acknowledged, they recognized that in Christ, God frees us from the law. But with some sensitivity toward the Jews, the Gentiles can also help bring the Jews into the liberty that Jesus has paid for. And thus, they were able to move forward. You know, once there was a millionaire who explained the success of his fortune 
explain his success to his young protege. He said, I started out by buying an apple for a nickel. I took that apple and I shined it up until it was brilliant red. Then I sold it for a dime. I took that dime and bought two more apples, shined them up, sold them for 20 cents. I took the 20 cents and bought four apples. I turned the four apples into eight and the eight apples into 16 and those 16 apples into 32. After selling them, I had $3.20. Then my father-in-law died and I inherited $10 million. (laughs) And as a child of God, this is our story. You've been blessed with untold spiritual treasure. But your windfall has had nothing to do with your hard work or your cleverness. We are rich because someone died for us. Jesus paid for God's eternal mercies, his incredible mercies. And as the Gentiles learned and as the church confirmed, we receive it all by faith. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we don't have to go back under the law? We are saved by faith. Stand fast in the liberty in which Christ has set us free. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time... They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. The Greek word translated determined, it means to keep on insisting. Barnabas was adamant. Mark's presence on their second trip was a non-negotiable. He wanted to take his nephew, John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take take with them one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You remember on their first trip, when they left Cyprus and sailed to the Turkish coast, Mark bailed. He proved chicken when they got to Turkey. Now, Uncle Barnabas wants to give his nephew a second chance. But in Paul's mind, John Mark has proven he's not up to the challenge. He might even have been a mama's boy, as we talked about before. See, when you're in a battle, you've got to be able to trust the men in your platoon. Paul had lost confidence in Barnabas' nephew. Well, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And when we read that, we, we all gasp. These men were apostles, founders of the church, no less. Can't they get along? And yet they argued so violently they split ranks. Guys, it occurred even in the early church. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. 
And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, here are men of spiritual stature. We we would call these men spiritual giants. They've just taken a brave stand, and they've wisely resolved a major schism in the church. They have averted a bust-up between the Jews and the Gentiles, but now, just days later, they endure their own bust-up. Mark had been a chicken, but Paul and Barnabas now act like turkeys. They should have gotten along. They should have worked it out, but they didn't. And here is an amazing truth. God still used them. Commentator Warren Wearsby states the obvious. He says, if God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never, ever get anything done. Isn't that true? God actually uses their obstinacy for his glory. Instead of one team now on mission among the Gentiles, there are two. The division actually doubled their efforts. And it's amazing that years later, when Paul is writing his last letter, sharing his final thoughts before he dies, 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, he writes to Timothy and he tells him, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Isn't that amazing? For some reason, apparently over time, Paul's attitude toward John Mark changed, where he viewed him an asset. Though Acts charts only Paul and Silas, it seems that Mark grows, Paul softens, and God uses them both. Isn't that great? Verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. These were the cities in Galatia. On Paul's first journey, he had sailed to Galatia. This time, he and Silas, they come overland, over the mountains. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. This woman was named Eunice. Her mom was named Lois. And in his second letter to Timothy, Paul describes their godly influence on young Timothy. Timothy's dad was an unbeliever, so it was left up to the nurturing of his mom and grandma, as well as Paul's example, that witnessed to this young man, Timothy. In fact, six times in the New Testament, Paul refers to Timothy as my son in the faith. And you know, I think every Christian should be both a Paul and a Timothy. See, like Timothy, we need to be mentored by an older, wiser Paul. Do you have someone in your life who's mentoring you and investing in your life? You should. You should have that person. And like Paul, we need to take a younger Timothy under our wing and begin to invest in their life. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? There should be both. Verse 2 continues to speak of Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Now wait just a minute. What in the world? Paul had just fought tooth and nail in Jerusalem to keep Titus from being circumcised. Why in the world is he now clipping Timothy? Now, recall Paul's strategy of evangelism. 
in most cities, he went first to the Jewish synagogue, then he went to the Gentiles. Now, if Timothy isn't circumcised, he won't be able to accompany Paul into the synagogue. Understand, this had nothing to do with Timothy's righteousness. It had to do with his effectiveness for the gospel. See, often being used by God requires us foregoing a liberty for love's sake, foregoing our own liberty in order to minister and share with someone else. For example, as a Christian, I'm free to smoke a big old fat cigar up here while I'm teaching God's Word, but I'm sure that would probably turn off a few of you. Thus, I'm happy to forego my liberty for your sake, for the gospel's sake. Every leader needs this attitude. We should be willing to set aside our own freedoms, put them on the shelf in order to serve the gospel and spread God's good news. Well, verse 4 tells us, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. They shared the letter that had been written by the council. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And notice this again. After they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Twice the Holy Spirit prohibited them from moving forward. Now, here's the challenge. Jesus said, go into all the world. But the Holy Spirit tells us where in the world to go. Paul is traveling westward. He turns south toward Asia, and God's Spirit says to him, no, don't go there. He turns north to Bithynia, and again, the Holy Spirit says no. See, we need to be as quick to obey God's no's as we are his goes. When the Holy Spirit puts a check in your heart, when he closes a door, it's best to wait or to move in another direction. Don't knock down a door the Lord closes. Verse 8. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Ancient Troas was near the Aegean Sea. It was south of today's Istanbul and the Dardanelles Strait. Headed west, it was the last stop before crossing into Europe. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, Immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And when Paul obeys this vision for the first time in history, God's gospel will come to the continent of Europe. And don't overlook the lesson here. God doesn't close one door without opening another. We may have to wait at times, but God is always faithful to lead us forward. Notice also the change of pronoun here in verse 10. Here, Luke starts writing in the first person. Notice he says, we sought to go to Macedonia. Apparently, the good Dr. Luke joined Paul in Troas and accompanied him to Macedonia. It could be that Luke came along now to help Paul in his illness. Remember, he had an infectious eye disease or perhaps malaria, 
something that bothered him. And maybe Luke is now traveling as his personal physician. In some Bible teachers' minds, uh, they've suggested that Dr. Luke was the man from Macedonia and Paul's vision could be a possibility. Well, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, about 150 miles northwest of Troas. And from there, just a short jaunt to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Philippi was 10 miles inland from Neapolis. Some folks believe it was Luke's hometown, especially since he gives it such a glowing description here. He says it's the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There were few Jews who lived in Philippi, so there was no synagogue. The Jews who lived there went to the river to pray, and they read Scripture on the Sabbath. You see, the male chauvinism of the Jewish rabbis would have deemed a band of women unworthy to receive the words of God, but not Paul. Notice Paul, he preaches to these women. He realizes that Christ died for all of us. And now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple dye expensive uh, form of dye. And she worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Lydia was a businesswoman and quite successful. She was the Mary Kay of Philippi. She was an importer of purple cloth. And now she gets the distinction of being the first European convert to Christianity. She opens up her heart to the words of Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This slave girl, she told fortunes, and she made a fortune for her owners. And yet no one cared about the poor girl trapped and controlled by demons. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Now what she said was true. But what pastor wants his publicity coming from a demoniac, from the town crazy lady? I mean, you could put it like this. The message was right, but the medium was wrong. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, this slave girl, she's pumping up Paul. But Paul, greatly annoyed. Not just to, (laughs) that that is sort of funny to me. Not filled with the Holy Spirit, but greatly annoyed. (laughs) He's just bugged by this gal. Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. She was instantly delivered. And you'd think her masters would be rejoicing for her. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas 
and dragged him into the marketplace to the authorities. They cared more about the gold than the girl. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You know, it's amazing how intolerant people, of, people are of the gospel when it starts cutting into their profits. It's all about the money for some people. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This wasn't a Jewish beating. A Jewish beating was always tempered with mercy. A scourging was limited to 39 lashes, but a Roman whipping was brutal. There were no limits. Its severity was up to the judge. Verse 23 here finishes their ordeal. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Prisons in the first century were usually in the jailer's basement. There's a picture of the jail in Philippi. We visited Philippi several years ago, and we were able to see the spot where they believed was the jailer's house. They would throw their prisoners in the basement of the house. It was cold and dark and damp and rat-infested. And the stocks stretched the victim's legs and arms. It wasn't just for restraint. The stocks were also a form of torture. So imagine Paul and Silas now. Their torso, a crisscross of cuts and oozing tissues. Their limbs dislocated, pulled out from their sockets. Their lacerated backs bumping up against the cold dirt wall or floor. The prison rats nibbling on a set of fresh toes. Unrelenting pain is now ricocheting through their bodies. Man, if this were me and all I'd done to deserve it was preach the gospel, I would be having a New Year's Eve-sized pity party, whining like you never heard before. But not Paul and Silas, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Rather than sulk, they sang. Rather than whine, they worshiped. They'd been beaten within an inch of their lives, and they're still praising God. Isn't that amazing? Do you have a tough faith? Do you have a faith that alive and that real in you? Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to be read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And God is the reason that Paul and Silas are singing here. Then suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Boy, praise is powerful. As Paul and Silas glorify God, their chains shake. God begins to shake the prison and sets them free. Paul is so in touch with his spiritual blessings, his joy in Jesus, that he's not depressed by his physical circumstances. What an example to us. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, 
supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, in Roman times, suicide was a kinder fate for a jailer who had let the whole prison population escape. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. We're all present and accounted for. We're still here. Then the jailer called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. How glorious this man gets saved from the joy he saw in Paul. Now, some people draw the wrong conclusion here from this verse and they teach a household salvation. Notice it says that Jailer was saved, you and your household. This idea of household salvation is that if a man gets saved, then everyone under his authority is also saved. That's not true. As a matter of fact, you need to read verse 31 in the proper context. For verse 32 follows, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. If by default the jailer's salvation included the rest of his household, then why did Paul make a house call here and share the gospel with everyone that was in his family? Dads can influence, but faith is always a personal decision each person has to make. Verse 33 tells us, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. I think this is so beautiful. The jailer washes and nurses Paul's wounds, and then Paul, in turn, baptizes the jailer. They both wash each other. Isn't that neat? You know, the jailer shows the true mark of repentance. He's willing to bring healing to the wounds he had inflicted. Understand this. This is a true mark of repentance, that you're willing to bring healing to the wounds that you have inflicted. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Notice the jailer didn't believe for his household, but with his household. They all believed. They all had faith. You know, I love this. This jailer is gloriously saved. He and all his household. And then he does what what everybody should do. He invites the pastor over for a meal. I'm available. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, Let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Now, amazingly, after the earthquake breaks them out, Paul and Silas, they stay in the jailer's custody until City Hall has to order their release. And you'd think their freedom would have been welcome news to Paul. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. You see, Paul had a passport, man. He had a Roman passport. As a citizen of Rome, he was due a fair trial. But that hadn't happened. 
These authorities had acted illegally, and now they want to save face and just brush the whole thing under the rug. Paul says, no. The gospel's integrity is at stake here. He doesn't want people thinking he's committed a crime. They need to come down here and make this right and release him themselves. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Mistreating a Roman citizen could bring down the wrath of Rome. Thus, to keep from being reported, the magistrates try to smooth things over with Paul. He agrees to leave town, but not before encouraging the church. Paul was always caring about the churches he planted. And so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Paul will later write a letter to these believers. We call it the book of Philippians. There we have Acts chapters 15 and 16. 